This is episode 424 of the 200 Churches podcast. American methods only work in America, and German principles or methods work in Germany, and and uh, Rwandan methods work in Rwanda. So methods are many, principles are few. Methods change often, but principles never do. So God wants us to build our lives on universal principles, not petty rules. There's a lot of stuff that you see it working in one church, go, that wouldn't work in my church. Well, of course it wouldn't, because you you don't have their people. But if you if the principle is biblical, it will work anywhere. Thank you for joining us on the 200 Churches Podcast. For more than 10 years, we've been providing ministry encouragement to pastors of small churches. Allow me to introduce one of those pastors, Jeff Cady, one of the co-founders of 200 Churches and the lead pastor of Community Heights Church in Newton, Iowa. Take it away, Jeff. Thank you, Angela. This is the 200 Churches Podcast. My name is Jeff Cady, and I'm excited for this episode because Willie Johnson, a brand new church planner who is planning a church called Redefine Church in St. Louis, and the website is Redefine STL, STL short for St. Louis, Redefine STL. You're going to want to go there and check out what Willie and his team are putting together. But I just want to read from you a couple lines from his website. Because Willie says, for many non-believers, the church means a big building with judgmental and bigoted people. For many non-believers, that's how they see the church. For believers, it can mean a place they come to to be served or to watch a show. And in reality, Willie writes, it's neither. The church remains the hope of the world, but for many, it must be redefined. In truth, the church is a worldwide community of imperfect believers, diverse in every way, but redeemed by Jesus and actively working to fulfill his mission. This group of people may only have one thing in common. They worship and love Jesus. They may not be from the same country, but they're brothers and sisters in Christ. They may vote differently but they have concern and love for each other. They may not speak the same language, but they have a shared affection for Christ. Willie Johnson and his team are planting in St. Louis. And he writes, St. Louis is one of the most segregated cities in the nation and is top five in homicides each year. Not something to boast about. In 2021, a study documenting the most sinful cities in America named St. Louis as the second most sinful city behind Las Vegas. St. Louis ranked number one in the nation in the category of hatred and anger. So Willie writes, we're planning a church because the love of Christ can turn a city known for hatred into a city on a hill shining the light of Christ. Willie concludes with this, we want to redefine what it means to be the church, and as a result, redefine St. Louis. When we were talking, he said, hey, we're not going to be building buildings as much as we're going to be building people. And that is a that is a great aspiration for a church planner. Willie and his team have not had their first public service yet. So I wanted to take the opportunity to have Willie sit down with Rick Warren, who is the former senior pastor at Saddleback Church in Lake Forest, California, who was there for 42 years, 43 as the senior pastor, and have those two sit down. And I've asked Rick to just do do kind of a coaching session 
with Willie on church planning. And what would you tell somebody who's just starting out from your perch way at the other end of the time continuum? So here's my conversation with Willie Johnson from RedefineSTL.com, Redefine Church in St. Louis. Check it out. And Rick Warren from Southern California. You probably get asked this all the time, Rick, uh, but I'm just, how are you doing? We talked to you several months ago, and how are you doing today? Have you had any improvement in the last three or four Thank months? Thank you. Yes, I have. I'm, I'm getting the the uh, the immune uh, immunity disorder that I've had for about two years. It's called PMR, polymyalgic rheumatica. Poly means you have it on both legs and both arms. Uh, myalgic means it's in the muscles, not in nerves or bones or joints. It's not like arthritis. And rheumatica means it's a rheumatic disease. It only old people get it. You have to be over 50 years of age to get it. And it lasts between one to five years. Uh, the typical is three. I've had it for about two and a half. I'm praying, Lord, make me below average. For the first yeah, time in yeah. my life, I want to be below average uh, in, in something. And it's actually been getting better and better. But I think in uh, in the last month, I've been able to work out every day, which is great because sometimes I would wake up and I literally couldn't move. I couldn't move either hand or arm stuff like that. Uh, but I think I tore my meniscus. So today after we finish this taping, I'm actually going to a, uh, orthopedic surgeon to get an x-ray on my knee, but otherwise I'm doing good. And my energy's really back. So that's good. 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 Well, you look good. Thanks. You look well, a, you guys do too. You look livelier than you did the last time and you were lively the last time. So, <laughs> so Rick, uh, this, uh, this is Willie Johnson and Willie is, uh, a church planter for the Christian Missionary Alliance in St. Louis, Missouri. And we're about, uh, I don't know, six, seven hours north in the Des Moines area. Yeah. And we're trying, we're wanting to partner with this church plant. And so I said, Willie, he's, he hasn't even had his first public meeting yet. He's got a small group together and he's got That's a great Willie. Know, You're in the exciting part. You're in the pregnancy. Yeah, he, he is. So, so I said to Willie, <clears throat> Willie, why don't you get on with Rick Warren and me? And, uh, I'd love to, you know, see what he might have to say to you as yeah. a church planner, you're doing, finishing the task, reaching, yeah. you know, reaching the parts yeah. of the world that are unreached. And so I asked him to join me. And again, that's well, Willie great. Johnson welcome. welcome Willie. You're my new best friend. Hey, God bless you. Thank you. <laughs> Rick, I'm glad that you're doing better. It's good to see you. And uh, I hope that Kay is doing well uh, as is well. Doing well, tomorrow, uh, she starts a two-day uh, Thrive and what is it called? Thrive and Cultivate, I think. Uh, she's got an online virtual conference for people in ministry who want to improve uh, their resilience, uh, mm. strengthen their mental health thrive more in their personal and professional life. It's a two-day online seminar. If you go to Kay at, at, at Instagram, something like that, you probably find the, the uh, okay. thing there. But she it's a big event. It's her annual event that she does to basically strengthen uh, the emotional and spiritual health of people who are serving in ministry. Nice. Amen. Very so, nice. A lot of pros involved in that. By the way, Willie, I know you, you were actually planting a church uh, with the CMA. Mm -hmm. Christian Missionary Alliance. Let me tell you my CMA story because it was actually uh, CMA that convinced me to start teaching purpose driven life seminars. Oh, amen. Uh, hmm. Yeah. When I planted Saddleback in 1980, 
and it started growing and growing and growing. And, and uh, but I didn't ever teach a seminar or a conference or a course on it because honestly, I didn't know if it would work anywhere else. Mm. I actually just thought, well, maybe it's just me in this location that's making it work. And I don't want to create false hope if there aren't principles that are universal that can actually be used in uh, villages or cities or towns, rural areas, suburban areas, urban, if it's not universal, I, I really don't want to teach it. Hmm. And so I actually hesitated uh, teaching uh, the principles that we were building Saddleback on and planting on. And one of the things that I did uh, the first year is I wrote this letter, which became pretty famous. Uh, it was a, a letter to non-believers. And we actually started the church uh, by a little group of about 10 of us hand addressing and hand stamping 15,000 letters. And we mailed them out 10 days before Easter to start our first service. Now, this mm. is back in 1980. And uh, the, the thing about that was uh, in those days, direct mail was much more rare. It's not as good of a tool today because you get so much junk mail uh, but in those days, for somebody to get something in the mail, it was a it was a bigger deal. <laughs> and uh, two things happened. First, uh, a bunch of people misread the letter and came a week early. We were starting on Easter Sunday. Sixty people showed up at the trial run service, I and five it. of them gave their lives to Christ. And wow! I went, oh, wait a minute, you can't get saved <laughs> till next week. We're not officially starting till next week, but. Five people, and and I got sixty strangers sitting in this little uh, uh, theater uh, of in a high school. Well, the next weekend we had two hundred and five people show up on our first service, which was crazy. And uh, I I remember Kay and I we're both twenty five years old. People are walking up the the ramp to the high school, and she looks at me with tears in her eyes. Goes, this is going to work. This is going to work. Right. Now, interesting. After that. For the rest of the month, after that big high day, and I'm telling this because there's a principle behind it, but there's also a CMA story. Um, for the rest of the month, the, the Easter, 205 people showed up. The rest of the uh, month, it was like about 105, 110. So we lost like a half of that that people. And people go, wow, you, you we, we went from, from 20, we had 20 people in a Bible study to 205 on the first service at Easter and then 120 for the rest of the month. Now, people go, wow, you lost 100 people. No, I gained 100. Hmm. And I went from 20 in a Bible study to 120 in one month. That's ridiculous growth. Okay. Uh, and, and, and so then we went through the season, uh, went through the summer, and in the fall, we made up another big day and set a big goal. And we had 305 people, no, 350 people at that. We just made up a Saddleback Valley Day. And then we went back down after that to about 175, 180. This is what I call the pyramid principle of church planting. And that is you, you, you have a big day and you break through a barrier and then you go back down and you, go, you, you lose a lot of the people, but you don't go back down as the, as the way you were before that. And mm -hmm. so for, for years, we built Saddleback on a two-humped camel of the, the uh, Easter and Christmas. Those were big days. But we also try to have a big day every quarter. You, you break through a barrier. If you got 25 people and you want to go to 50, you got to go really big and go, go to 50 
and then you go back down to 35. Okay. But then it, 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 it's a stair-stepping thing. And so every year, Christmas and Easter, we would have a, a larger attendance, of course, like every church does. And we go, that helped my people imagine what would it be like to have 300 people? We yeah. saw, we just saw that. What would it be like to have 400 people? Okay. And, 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 and so when you're, when you're running 15, if you can get a hundred people, people see, well, that's what it looks like to have a hundred people. See what I'm saying? Yeah, and so, right. so we, we actually used in the early days, we used the direct mail piece and I would write a letter to non-Christians. Uh, it's in the book, Purpose Driven Church. Now it's been used, but the first people to use that letter was the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And All what right. they did is about year five of Saddleback. So that probably would have been about 1995, uh, 85. Uh, the director of church planning for Christian Missionary Alliance took that letter, the exact letter that I wrote to start Saddleback, and 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 used it on Easter Sunday to start 107 churches. Wow. And they Amen. mailed them out all over. The The smallest one uh, was a church in Montana that had seven people show up at their first service. Uh, the largest one was a Christian and Missionary Alliance church in Oregon that had over 300 people show up at their first service. Mm, wow. And, and so, you know, that has a lot to do with your location. Uh, I grew up in a town of less than 500 people. It's called Redwood Valley in Northern California. So there's and you got a town of 500 people. There's no way we were going to have 300 people for a service. Okay. And, and so the very first church I started, I uh, did it in my dad's uh, dairy barn. We, we, had a, we had a piece of property and I swept out this dairy barn. We didn't have any cows at the time. And I found some old uh, rickety uh, chairs from a, a closed movie theater, put them in there. And I grew that my first church to a whopping 19 people in that barn. But when you got 19 people in a town of 500, that's a good church. That's a mega church. <laughs> that's a mega church. When you talk about, I would love to have that percentage at Saddleback right now compared mm. to the people around me. If I had that, the what, what we need to do is never compare numbers to numbers, Yeah, but good. compare ratios to ratio. That's good. Okay. A church of 75 people in, in a town of, of a thousand is doing better than Saddleback. Mm. When you compare the, the the population around it to the number of people being reached. So yeah. comparing size to size is dumb. That's like comparing tangerines to submarines. They sound a lot alike, but they're not. Okay, they're not at all alike. And, and so having planted a church in rural areas, having a planted a church in an inner city area, having planted a church overseas in Nagasaki, Japan, and having planted a church in the suburbs, I can tell you it's different strokes for different folks, okay? Yeah. In other words, and, and so we need to look at who are we reaching in light of who's in the area. Mm -hmm. Amen. And so, so at what point did you start doing your Purpose Driven Church seminar? You know, that, what, what it was is after uh, they, when I heard that Christian Missionary Alliance had taken my purpose-driven principles, which I'd never taught at a seminar, and had taken my letter and started 107 churches on one day. I'm going, we can do this. 
Okay. This is going to be the, these principles will work rural, urban, suburban, village, overseas. If a principle is biblical, it's transcultural. It means it'll work anywhere. Now, there are American principles, uh, methods only work in America, and German principles or methods work in Germany, and, and uh, Rwandan methods work in Rwanda. So methods are many, principles are few. Methods change often, but principles never do. So God wants us to build our lives on universal principles, not petty rules. And, and there's a lot of stuff that you see it working in one church, go, that wouldn't work in my church. Well, of course it wouldn't, because you don't have their people. Uh, that you don't have, but if, you, if a principle is biblical, it will work anywhere. Yeah, that's good. So, Rick, you, you've got this uh, finishing the task mission that you're on, and you've yeah. also got this book, Created to Dream. And I'm just thinking about the principles you have in both of those, in both those areas. Yeah. And you've got a guy here who's not even had his first service yet. Yeah. Yeah. What what would you say to him? Like, you know, he can't, he can't have a whole dump truck load, right? Cause he yeah. hasn't even yeah. had his first service. What yeah, should right. he really be focused on right well, now? Here's, here's, here's what you should be focusing on week two. Because what most church planners do is we spend months preparing week one mm. and haven't even, and you don't even think about week two until the day after the first service. Huh. And, 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 and so it's going to come up every seven days for the rest of your life. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so what I'm saying is we, we, most church planners, we make the mistake. I did this. We make the mistake of spending months and months planning the first service and not thinking, what are we going to do with them week two and week three and week four? And uh, if I have to say this, to summarize everything I'd want to teach you as a brand new church planner, I'd say, don't solve problems, build systems. Now let me explain that. Don't Mm -hmm. solve problems, build a system. Every time you have a problem, uh, Willie, for the rest of your life, you're going to have that problem again over and over and over. So mm-hmm. you may well figure out a way that every time you have that problem, you know what to do. That's good. So you build a system. And, 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 and a system like if somebody says, well, pastor, what about this? Well, then you know how to answer that again and again and again. So you don't solve problems. You build systems. You create uh, something that, well, we did it that way the first time. It can be done again and again and again and again and again. That's great. Now, let me talk to you personally uh, 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 about these six phases of faith, which you will go through many, many times in your lifetime. Uh, that's from this new book called Created a Dream. It's the first book I've written in about 10 years. I'm not a guy who feels like I have to write something every every year. You know, there, so there's some guys, man, they just churn those books out. I'm good for about one book a decade. (laughs) Now, fortunately they do sell well, but, 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 uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a guy who's just constantly feeling I got to get the next book out. I only put a book out when I think, I think the world needs to hear this Hmm. and coming out of COVID, I wrote this book for pastors and for people who were discouraged. Um, I spent the better part of three years on the phone. I probably talked to as many pastors as anybody does 
and spent a lot of time in the last three years convincing guys to not give up, hmm. to not to not retire early, to to not check out because we were we were bombarded, Willie, by what I call the five giant storms. We had the a global infirmity that's yeah. uh, that's COVID. Okay, we had uh, social. Uh, uh, instability. We had people rioting in the streets and stuff like that. Uh, we had economic insecurity because a lot of millions of people were out of jobs. We had racial inequality when all of a sudden we went through that whole spate of Ahmaud Aubrey, uh, you know, uh, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, uh, people being shot right after each other and going, hey, where's where is uh, where's the justice in all this? racial inequality, and then we had political incivility yeah. where people are throwing mud at each other and they're arguing over mask or no mask, uh, vaccine or no vaccine, uh, meet together as a church. You know? And so pastors were being hit by all these different things, uh, racism, economics, uh, the Me Too movement, you know, the, all legitimate issues that needed to be dealt with, but it was just pulling them different directions. And so a lot of guys were tired and discouraged. So I wrote this book on that. And since you're just getting started, uh, let me just go through these things. These these uh, six phases of faith, which are in this book, Created a Dream, I could take you through every person in the Bible and show you how they go through them. Abraham went through them. Moses went through them. Joshua went through them. David went through them. Jesus went through them. The disciples, Paul, uh, Noah. Everybody goes through these same phases over and over where how God builds our faith. Here they are. Phase one is a dream. It always starts with a dream. That's why the title of the book is called Created to Dream. We are most like our creator when we're being creative. Hmm. Okay. We're most like our creator when we're being creative. And what sets us apart from animals is the ability to create and dream and plan and set goals. We can think about our lives years ahead. Horses don't do that. Right. Cows don't do that. Fish don't do Every animal lives just for the moment. Human beings are the only creation on earth that can actually dream what our life would be like in five years or what our church would be like in two years or 10 years or 100 years. And so dreaming, uh, Einstein said, Dreaming, imagination is more important than knowledge because mm. everything in life started as a dream. Napoleon yeah. said, uh, uh, imagination rules the world. Mm. Everything that you see, including the church that you're planting, starts as a dream. Okay. Yep. Nothing happens to somebody starts dreaming. So dreaming is a, is a big deal. Uh, it's, it's, it's a part, actually dreaming is an act of faith. Uh, mm -hmm. and it's actually using a skill that God gave you. And, and we're all created to dream and little children don't have any problem dreaming. They dream up all kinds of weird things. When somehow growing up, we get the dream kicked out of us. Yeah. Okay. We get that creativity. Kids put stuff together that we would never imagine putting together and creating new things. So it starts as a dream. But a dream is worthless until you go to phase two, because there are millions and millions of people who die with unfulfilled dreams. Yeah. It's not enough just to dream. At some point, 
you got to wake up and do something about it. That's when you go to phase two, which is decision. Mm-hmm. You move from dream to decision. And the decision is you decide to invest the time, the energy, the money, your reputation. You invest whatever it takes to launch the dream. Just like you're in this stage right now, you're doing the investment. You've already made the decision. So you're already in phase two. Okay. You had a dream. You know, I think God wants to use me to plant a church. Yep. Now now you've made the decision. Okay. I tried to tell him no, but he told me yes. (laughs) How did you try to tell him no? Just in prayer and just uh, talking about it? Well, I was looking at man's resources and I I was like, this doesn't compute. And uh, I have three young kids and was like, this is just not a good time. And just kind of looking at the support system that I thought I would have. And I was like, I don't, I don't know if this is, this isn't it. We're not going to do this. And uh, basically it's really funny. You, you're sharing what you're sharing. Yeah. I was on my couch complaining like, all right, Lord, you know, when are you going to give me a job at a, at a great right. multicultural church? And right. he said, um, why are you waiting for the perfect opportunity instead of doing the things I placed on your heart? Yeah. And that was the dream that I've been dreaming, yeah. but was afraid to act. And he said, uh, no, you need to do what I've already put on your heart to do. And so. Amen. Everything's resonating. Amen. Well, first place, Ecclesiastes is a verse that says, if you wait for perfect conditions, you'll never get anything done. I have that on my. Um, OK, on you know my, what I'm talking uh, about? Uh, invitation. Right. What you just described is true of every single leader going all the way back to Moses. When God said, I'm going to use you to set my people free, to liberate an entire nation. Moses goes, moi, me? And he starts coming up with all these excuses why he couldn't. Every single leader does what you just did. In fact, I'd be worried about you if you you didn't have those questions of self-doubt. Am I the right guy? Is this the right time? Do I have the skills? The truth is none of us do. Yes. Moses starts giving all these reasons why he's the God, you picked the wrong guy. God does not answer. He doesn't say, no, you're competent. No, you've got all the skills. No, he just says, I will be with you. Yeah, that's good. That's the key. That's the key. It's that one plus God equals a majority. So, you know, it, it, it's not God uh, uh, calls the 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 gifted. He he gifts the called, That's and good. he he equips the called. He doesn't call the equipped. None of us are equipped. It's kind of like being a parent. Name me one human being who was ready to be a parent. None. None. Okay. We it was on the job training, and how scared we were when we first held that little baby for the first time. Go. I have no idea what to do. And I don't know how to make this child stop crying. And and the terror in your heart when you can't get a baby to stop crying. Uh, that's a that's, whole lot. Exactly. So we, we all know that that in the decision, the, 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 there's going to be the doubts and stuff like that. And God's antidote to all of my reasons why it's not a good time is I'll be with you. Mm-hmm. I'll be with you. And, and if God's going to be with you, God doesn't sponsor flops, okay? And so I, I'm trusting not in my competence. I'm trusting in his closeness. That's good. 
Yeah. I will be I will be with you. And any church planner who happens to be listening, or just a, a pastor of a church who's feeling a little discouraged and feeling like I'm out of my league. Yeah, you know, guess what? We're all out of our league. Okay. <laughs> and 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 that's how we grow. We constantly get stretched. And as the church grows from 25 to 50, you get stretched. And from 50 to 100, you get stretched. Okay. And from 100 to 125, you get stretched. At every stage. God's never going to stop stretching you. Yeah. So, so uh, we move from dream. You, you get a dream, but at some point you got to wake up from the dream and make the decision. And all great dreams eventually deteriorate into projects. I mean, work to be done. Okay. And then, then, and that's not always the fun part. The dream is the fun part. The good thing about a dream, and I, I challenge everybody to dream great, great dreams for God is it doesn't cost anything. Yeah, it's absolutely free. It's free. I can sit in my room and dream all kinds of things, and it doesn't cost me a thing about what I want to do next with the church or with finishing the task or or what. In Ephesians, Paul, uh, Paul tells us that God says, uh, God is able to do all greater than you are able to think or dream or imagine far beyond your wildest dreams, it says in the New Living Translation. Now, I don't know about you. I'm a pretty big dreamer, but God says, Rick, think of the biggest thing, dream up the biggest thing I could do in your life. And guess what? I could top that. Right. That's good. I could top that. Okay. And so God's dream is always bigger than our dream. And, and, and it doesn't, he doesn't lay it out like a map where you, where you see the beginning and end. I'm in New York city. I'm going to LA and you can see the whole map. God will never do that. God's will is like a, um, a scroll. He unrolls a little and you do that. Then he unrolls a little bit more and you do that. And he unrolls a little bit more and you do that. And it's really step-by-step faith. Martin Luther King once said, you don't have to see the stop top of the stairs to take the first step. Mm. Okay. And that's true with church planting. It's true with getting married. It's true with having kids. You don't have to see the top of the stairs to take the first step. It's one step at a time. And so you move from dream to decision. Now, once you make the decision, then you start the negative parts of the phases of faith. Phase three is delay. Dream, decision, delay. There is always, 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 always a delay between the giving of the dream and the fulfillment of the dream. Mm. No dream is fulfilled instantly. None, zero, zip, nada. It's it's like God is not a vending machine where you put in the prayer and you pull and you get the candy. It's not that instant. There is a dream. And why, why are there delays? Because while you're working on the dream, God is working on you. Yeah. And actually, you are more important than the dream. Why? Absolutely. You're not taking anything on earth to heaven with you except other people. Uh, You're not taking your career. You're not taking your clothes. You're not taking your cash. You're not taking your China or your cars. But what you are taking is your character. Yeah. And so while you're working on the dream of planting a new church, God is going to be working on you. Yeah. Somehow I was fortunate enough to figure this out really early on. Because when I was in seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, I was an interim for the interim. Uh, my 
evangelism professor Roy Fish had me as his as his teaching assistant for three years. And so when he was interim of a church, then when he had to go to a conference, I ended up having to be the interim for the interim pastor. And I got to speak in some pretty big churches in the Dallas area as, as a young guy, uh, just because I was in line there. And there was a church with 6,000 members called Casa View Baptist Church in Dallas, and they wanted to call me as their pastor. And I said, no way, I'm, I'm not equipped for this. I said, I've never been a senior pastor. And to come into a church with 6,000 members, that, that'd, be, that'd be suicide. I said, I yeah. need to go and start with nobody. And I need to grow as the church grows. Yeah. And so I felt actually more confident going and starting with nothing. It was just Kay and I. You know, I preached the first sermon to her. Uh, she said it was too long. It's been downhill ever since. <laughs> <laughs> and she's still saying it's too long. I mean, 40, 43 years later, she's still saying it's too long. Okay. <laughs> but uh, but you're going to have delays. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, if I had known how long it was going to take us to get a land and then get a building, I might have given up early on. We went 15 years without our own building. Wow. 15 years. Land is so expensive in Orange County. When I got here in 1980, it was already a million dollars an acre in Mission Diego. Million dollars. That was in 1980. You can imagine what it is today. Wow. And and so everybody laughed when I got up the first service. and, And part of the dream that I was sharing in that very first service was, I believe God will one day have us have at least 50 acres of land on which we're going to build a large regional church. And we all had a good laugh at 50 million. That'd be, that'd be a million bucks. Then we're all laughing, you know, because I, I couldn't even fathom that kind of that money. And of course, God had a bigger dream than that. We, we actually have 120 acres at the Lake Forest campus. We have 170 acres at the uh, Rancho Capistrano campus. God does beyond your imagination, but the bottom line is it didn't scare me because I could, I said, it's just another zero. Okay. We, I did, I can't even fathom what that amount of money is, but anyway, um, it, it was 15 years. We went 13 years without land, which meant in the first 13 years of our church, we used 79 different facilities. Oh, wow. Can you imagine that we kept moving. Wow. And, and we wouldn't be, we'd be in a school, we'd move to another school, we'd move to a bank building, we moved to a park, uh, we moved to an outdoor stadium, uh, we moved to a tent, all these different things. We used to say, uh, we're, we're the church where if you can figure out where we are this week, you get to come. Because <laughs> we only want really intelligent people. So we keep changing the location. We use 79 different facilities. It reminds me of Abraham being intense his entire lifetime. Mm. God had said, I'm going to give you the land. He never did get the land. It Mm. was three generations before they got the land. Actually, longer than that, because they moved into Egypt for 400 years and then came back and got it. But there will always be delays. Delays are not denials. Mm. Very important. It was like, well, why are we getting this? I remember long about year 13, and we still didn't have land. And and there were so many, we've, when he finally bought a piece of property and after we bought it, all of a sudden they, the environmentalists came after us 
and they wanted to require $9 million in environmental mitigation before we could actually move onto the property. Wow. It was crazy. It was a 72-acre piece of property and said, there are 82 uh, oak trees at the back. We want you to move them to the front. We want you to build a 70-foot berm so the church can't be seen from the road. Uh, wow. We want you to put in a charcoal filtration water system so that the water that drains off your parking lot is avion pure. Uh, you can't build it, uh, it was 72 acres. You can't have 72 acres. You can have nine and give the rest back to the county as open space. It's wow. ridiculous, all the restrictions that they were putting on us. And it was a three-year battle with the county. And uh, we finally ended up trading that piece of property for another one. But God knew what he was doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it went up in equity. And we were able to get a much bigger piece, a nicer piece. Bottom line is, is this. A delay is not a denial. Yeah. And when there's a delay, it means God has something better and God has something bigger. That's good. So, so you just trust. So let's go over it. Dream phase one, make the decision to invest time, money, reputation, then the inevitable delay. Mm -hmm. Then you're going to come to stage four, and that is difficulties. What that means is now you not only get to wait, you get to have problems while you wait. (laughs) (laughs) And, And there will be all kinds of problems in church planting. There will be financial problems. There will be relational problems. Uh, there will be health problems. Uh, there will, oh, there, you can't even imagine all the difficulties that you're going to have while you're waiting in the delays. And yet in this time, you know, I used to tell pastors, I said, when you're in the delay and difficulty time and you don't even have a, a permanent place to meet, okay, build your people before you build your steeple. That's good. Build your people before you build your steeple. And I will remember our church was running over 10,000 in attendance before we had a permanent building. Wow. Think about that. We were literally setting up and taking down a church every week. There's no glory in that. It's just hard work. Right. And we did it year after year, after year, after year, after year. Uh, When we first started the church, I literally stored everything in my garage. I didn't even have a, a car to move it. I had to borrow a pickup truck. And early Sunday morning, I'd go to my garage, take all the nursery equipment, the stuff we were going to use for worship, take it over to the high school, unload it, take the truck to the guy's house so he could use it during our services. And then afterwards, I'd go borrow his truck again, pack it all up and take it back to my garage. Now, Amen. I quickly learned to get volunteers to help. Amen. Okay? But, but. I remember one time in about year four or year five, and that that was in the still in the stage when I was trying to wear a suit to look older at the time, and it was pouring down rain, and we are taking stuff out of uh, uh, containers on a high school to take them into the classrooms and stuff like that, (laughs) and set up church, uh, Sunday school classrooms, and set up our worship service, and and I started having a pity party. Because I'm, I'm, you know, I've been pastor of this church about five years. It's growing, and 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 I'm, I'm going. I'm still having to set up, Lord, and I'm, I'm having a complaint, a pity party, and inviting mm-hmm. myself to it. And I start going. Chuck Swindoll doesn't have to do this. Charles Stanley doesn't have to do this. I start naming all these well-known pastors who are older than me, 
at the time. And, and he doesn't have to do this. He doesn't have to do this. And I was really kind of complaining to God. And at, at some point, the Lord just kind of smote me. Have you ever been smote? <laughs> and, and, and he said this, he said, uh, Rick, who are you doing this for? Yeah. Who are you doing this for? And I said, he said, well, I'm, I, I'm, I'm doing it for you, Lord, for Jesus sake. I'm doing it for the cross. I'm doing it for the salvation of people. And he goes, well, what is it if I never let you ever have a building? Will you serve me as a church planter for the rest of your life? If this thing keeps growing and growing and you never can afford a building, will you still serve me? And he goes, what is is that to you? Kay calls this the witty principle, W-I-T-T-Y. My wife has a famous sermon on it. And she says that when when Peter is told by Jesus, you're going to be crucified, you're going to die for me. And he looks at his fellow disciple, John, and goes, what about that guy? And Jesus <laughs> says, what is that to you? Yep. What is that to you? You come follow me, W-I-T-T-Y. What is that to you? And he goes, if I don't ever let you have a building and every other church planter in Orange County gets the facility, will you still serve me? Hmm. Will you still love me? And 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 I said yes, Lord, I will. And that was kind of a turning point for me. So we had the delays, we had the difficulties, and then you come to phase five. Phase five is called dead end. <laughs> and in dead end, the difficulties get so bad it looks impossible. This hmm. is typically called the death of a dream or the death of a vision. The problems go from bad to worse to really worse to impossible. And you go, there's no way this is going to happen. There's no way we're getting out of this. There's no way it's going to, it's going to work out. But when you're in dead end, you are exactly where God wants you to be. Mm. When the children of Israel came out of uh, Egypt and they're getting ready to go across to uh, Israel, all of a sudden, they come up against the Red Sea. Now, they're at a place called Baal Zephon, which means there's mountains on either side of them. Mm. There's an impossible, impassable ocean in front of them. Wow. And, and, and uh, Pharaoh's coming on hot pursuit with all of his, tri- uh, his, his nation or his uh, soldiers to kill them. I call this God's little cul-de-sac. Okay. Okay. <laughs> They are in a dead end. No, can't go forward, can't go sideways, can't go backwards. They're exactly where God wants them to be. And mm-hmm. when you are in the inevitable dead ends of life, and they will, there will be many as a church planter, as a pastor, you're exactly where God wants you to be. Because when you come to the dead end, you get excited because the next phase is deliverance. Amen. I thought it might God, God, God parts the Red Sea and you walk through. Uh, mm-hmm. God brings the water down from heaven and parts, uh, you know, the parched earth. Is, uh, God loves to turn crucifixions into resurrections. Amen. The greatest example of dead end of deliverance is the cross. Yeah. And they're watching Jesus be murdered senselessly on the cross. And they, and they go back and they hide in a room with the door locked for fear of the the Jewish leaders, and they're moaning and groaning and depressed and down. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. 
you know, it's, it's the deliverance is going to be there. Now, I have gone through those phases, dream, decision, delay, difficulty, dead end, and then deliverance many, many, many times. I've been in a, 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 a delay dead end uh, for about two, uh, two years on my health, mm-hmm. which my brain was going, here's what I know God's called me to do, and I can't get it done because of my physical health. And the reason I didn't despair in any of that time is because I've learned that God's timing is always perfect. Yeah. And that in God's timing, he can do more in five weeks than I could do in five years on my own. Yeah. So, so that, that that's a whole co- crash course in the making of a minister or the building of a pastor or the, the character development of a church planner. You're going to go through those stages over. And the whole reason every phase and every stage will test your faith. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We're seeing that now it's been, uh, yeah, me and my wife could joke about how many times this something just magically didn't work out. Not magically, but it, yeah, right. The it Lord didn't is, work out like it's supposed to. Nope, over and over. But the Lord always comes to, and He's yeah, He's been exactly. super faithful, um, and showing us like, hey, you're not going to go into this next season the same. Um, and I'm trying to prepare my team. Like, we're not. None of us are going to be the same walking into God's call. He's going to stretch us like you can see. Rick, you are, uh, you're working on finishing the task. What, what's the active ingredient in that organization's uh, philosophy? There's, there's an active ingredient somewhere because you're looking at crossing the finish line at some point. What is that active ingredient? A good, good, good point. Um, Jeff, uh, there are about a dozen of these active ingredients. Um, I'm only going to deal with one of them right now. I want to, cause I want to explain it in detail, but they're all, all those active ingredients are in Acts chapter one and chapter two. Uh, I believe that the church at its birth was the church at its best. Uh, uh, and this is a, a, a concept that, we need to go back to the New Testament. If we'll do it the way the New Testament did it, we'll have New Testament results. I, when COVID hit, I decided that I was going to read every book in print on the Great Commission and every book that I could find on the history of missions. Because I'm going, why haven't we already completed the Great Commission in 2,000 years? I mean, we've had godly people for generations. Why haven't we? Why isn't the task finished? Why hasn't everybody heard? There's still a lot of people I haven't ever heard. What I discovered was that the church grew fastest in the first four centuries. That's that's from zero to 399, okay? And in the first 300 or so, 350 years of the church, we grew an average, Christianity grew, of 50% a decade. That's incredible wow. growth, okay? How did we go from... Uh, 120 people in an upper room at Pentecost uh, to uh, by about 350, 360, uh, it's now the official religion of the Roman Empire. It had yeah. taken over. Yeah. Uh, the Roman Empire had uh, about 60 million people total in it. Uh, before the end of that, of the 300s, 
about 30 million of them were Christians. Half. I have in my um, in my library two coins, old Roman denariuses. One's from seven A.D. and it has Caesar's picture on it, and the other is from three fifty A.D. and it's got the cross on it. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, that's cultural change. When all of a sudden the money has 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 Cairo, Jesus is on it, and the cross is on it. I mean, it totally flipped. And Caesar's not on it anymore. All of a sudden, Christian symbols are on it. And so Jesus would have to say, hey, give to God the things that are God's. We grew 50% a decade. So I've spent the last three years studying what they did right in the first 300 years. Okay, in church planting and everything else, in evangelism. And then I spent also what we did wrong in the next 1700. Why did why yeah. did Christianity slow down? Why did it why did it not grow as fast at the same rate as it did the first 350 years? What did they not have? The, the, the first Christians are growing 50% a decade, and they had no printing press. Okay. They have no TV, radio, broadcast, they have no internet, they have no planes, trains, automobiles, no cars. There were no church buildings for the yeah. first 300 years of the church. None. Everybody met in homes. So the first, I've been in the oldest church standing. It's in Malula, uh, Syria, and it was built in about 320 AD. And it's, it'll hold about 15 people. Okay, so it wasn't a big cathedral. Hmm. Uh, it, it's, it was just a, almost about the same size as a house, uh, but it did have a communion table in it. Um, Anyway, uh, they they had no church buildings. They had no pulpits. They didn't have they didn't have the Bibles. There were no printed Bibles until the 15th century. No pulpits till the 9th century, and no uh, church buildings till the 4th century. And yet they were growing, explosive exponential growth. All of the things that cause those growth are in the first two chapters of Acts. But let me just uh, mention one of them because this is, uh, this is part of the secret sauce. I believe that the key to completing the Great Commission is found in the parable of the four soils, where Jesus has a seed in the soils. You know, he says the sower represents God and the, or the evangelist and the seed is the word of God. And the four soils represent four responses, four receptivities, four kinds of human heart. The hard soil represents the hard heart, and the gospel doesn't even penetrate. They're resistant. They're not even listening, and and they don't even care. If you plant the seed on cement, the bird just comes and eats it up and goes away. It's not going to produce anything on, on hard soil. The, the shallow soil represents the superficial heart, where I make a quick decision, but then I just flake out when times get tough because they didn't have any roots. And I didn't build any roots, uh, and so I'm, I'm a shallow uh, uh, receiver. Then the, the, the soil with rocks and the soil with uh, weeds in it represents the distracted heart. And it says that the soil, the person actually receives the word of God, and they, they're born again, but the cares of this life, riches and pleasure and, and wor- you know, work and play and hobbies, all those things go in and choke out the word of God, and it doesn't produce. 
But then there's the good soil. It's soft, it's moist, it's fertilized. And when you plant the, the word of God in the good soil, it doesn't just reproduce another seed. It reproduces multiple seeds. If I plant one kernel of corn, I don't get one kernel of corn back. I get a corn stalk with eight ears and thousands of, of a corn kernels on that one out of that one kernel. It's exponential, multiplied growth. Now, it's God's job to prepare the soil. It's my job as a good steward to invest most of the seed where it's going to get the most results. In other words, if I'm a farmer and I've only got a certain amount of seed, I'm certainly not going to throw it out on a bunch of cement. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to throw it on a sandy desert. I'm going to look for the soil. I'm going to put as much of my seed in the good soil as, as possible and not waste the seed on rocky soil, shallow soil, and, and uh, soil with a bunch of weeds in it. Okay. Now, receptivity, God is responsible for receptivity. I'm responsible for good soil, uh, I mean, good seed management and on that. Mm -hmm. Follow me on this. Since I can't prepare a guy's heart, that's the Holy Spirit's job. What should I do? I should look for people with receptivity. Mm. When I'm a, as a church planter, look for the most receptive people in your community. Who are they? Okay, let me answer it this way. The most receptive people are these. The way God turns hard soil into good soil is he sends a storm. Sure. <laughs> he sends a storm. And when the rains and the floods come down, it softens the soil. It breaks up the fallow ground. It loosens it all so that the seed can penetrate. God sends a storm to make people receptive. Pain is God's megaphone. Hmm. I've been telling pastors for 40 years, you can build a church if you just focus on people in pain and ignore everybody else. Hmm. Because everybody is in pain at different times. Right. Okay. Pain is what makes us receptive. When people are in pain, you look at the people who came to Jesus. Almost everybody who came to Jesus yeah. was in pain. Yeah. Physical pain, emotional pain. They're hungry. They needed relief. People come to Christ when they're in transition or under tension, when they're in pain. So I'm not going to spread my seed to a bunch of people who aren't in pain. I'm going to go first to the people in pain. That's how he turns hard soil into soft soil. Now, receptivity changes, and it varies. Sometimes people are very open. Sometimes they're very closed. I noticed this as a parent with my teenagers, that my kids were like clams. And sometimes they open up, and they're really willing to talk, but most of the time they're closed. Right. And what I discovered in my kids is that when I said we need to talk, they were always going to be closed. Okay. Face-to-face -face conversations never worked. They were always closed. Formal face-to-face -face never worked. What the times my kids were most open were most likely when we're driving in a car side by side. Interesting. And when they're by my side and I'm driving, they open up. And all of a sudden you could get a little chance to throw some spiritual insights in there, because that's not going to stay open for very long. Hmm. 
But side-by-side conversations tended to work better than parent-child front face-on uh, conversations. They, they kind of close up on that. So here's a guy in your city, and he's 80 years old. And he has been resistant. He's been witnessed to 15 times in his lifetime. And he doesn't want to hear the next pastor, or the next preacher, the next church planter. He's just not interesting. What do you do? You just love the guy. And you wait because one day his wife's going to die and then he's going to be in pain and he's going to be, where did she go? And what, what happens after life? And all of a sudden he starts asking things. There's a million ways God can bring pain into, into his life. And if you've built a bridge of love, then when he's in pain, he'll be open. I had one time the CEO of Adidas, you know, the shoe company. Yeah. His name was Eric Staminger. He's a German guy. And he calls me up one day from Germany, CEO of Adidas. And he says, I read your book, Purpose Driven Life. And I gave my life to Christ. Wow. Uh, I will come anywhere in the world to meet you. I said, well, why don't you come to church this weekend? He goes, well, I will. I said, where are you? He <laughs> says, well, actually, I'm in China right now closing a deal. I'll fly back over to, to LA airport and I'll, I'll come see you on Sunday. So between services on Sunday, I take him out back in my little patio area where I wait between services. And I said, so, uh, Eric, how can I help you? He said, well, as I said, I'm a CEO and I've given my life to Christ. I'm wondering, should I resign from Adidas and become a pastor? I said, (laughs) no, no. Are you kidding? Let me give you a dozen reasons. That's a dumb idea. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> and and uh, I said, uh, so do you want to bring people, other people to Jesus? Yeah, great. Okay. First, do you have any other Christians in your executive level at Adidas? He goes, well, yeah, actually there are three who are Christians that are, uh, you know, chief officers. I said, well, your first job is to start meeting with them and praying for all of your employees. Hmm. I said, second, uh, how many employees do you have? He goes, 30,000. I goes, you're already pastoring a mega church. Why would you want to do anything else? Okay. <laughs> Pastor mega church. So you stay there. He said, do you want to influence business leaders? Yeah. You'll influence them more as a businessman than as, as a pastor, because you're one of them. They, they want to know what's the secret of your growth and stuff like that. I said, you want to influence culture? I said, he said, yeah. I said, culture is influenced by three things, music, sports, and entertainment. Yeah. Everything else is downstream. Politics is downstream. But if you want to change culture, you go up to where they're influ- artists and, and musicians and, and uh, athletes. No kid has a picture of a politician on his wall. Yeah. You know, it's a picture of some rap dude or some, uh, uh, you know, uh, Steph Car, you know, Steph uh, or, or LeBron. Steph you know, Perry. it's, it's something. Yeah, Seth Curry. Uh, it's got they've got pictures of athletes, pictures of musicians, pictures of entertainers, athletes. I said, so you you deal with these kind of people all the time. He said, Yeah, I do. I said, Who's a recent one? He said, David Beckham. We wow. signed him, you know, for uh, for Adidas shoes. I said, Well, here's what you do when David Beckham comes in, you hand him your business card and you say, David, I don't want to just be your sponsor. I want to be your friend. And anytime you get in trouble, 
or you're going through a rough spot, here's my card. You come to me and I'll help you out. And then you just wait because every athlete has a slump or they have an injury or they have a scandal or they have some kind of failure with drugs or it could be a dozen different things. And then when they're in pain, you can move in and you could share the gospel with them and they'll be much more receptive. So one of the principles that we're going to be teaching, I've actually been working on an online course that any of the people who are listening to this can, can sign up for. It's free and I'm going to be start teaching it uh, in, uh, in August, every month for a year. It's going to be a year-long seminar and it's basically everything I learned in 53 years of ministry and all the mistakes I don't want you to make. Okay. And, and basically I'm not just telling them, well, here, this worked. I want to tell you what didn't work. So spare, spare you the time of figuring that out. And you know, I don't have time to make all the mistakes myself. It's wiser to learn from the experiences of others. It's also cheaper and less painful. And so I'm going to do this and I'm going to, in, in that, I will be sharing, for instance, this principle of go after people in pain. That's just one uh, of, of the principles that we're going to build, uh, finishing the task around. That's great. That's awesome. Now, before we're done in Rick, you got to go, I assume to get your knee looked at yeah. and poked at Willie. Is there one more question you'd like to ask or have, yeah. have you been filled to overflowing? <laughs> well, I'm, you know, I, I'm often a fire hydrant. I just kind of, <laughs> that's good. That's good. Drink, drinking, drinking water from a fire hydrant. So, well, Willie, while you're looking, Rick, um, you were your legs were dangling off the edge of the stage after one of the conference sessions yeah. in in uh, nineteen ninety eight huh. July, and I never want to bother. You got people. a good. Memory. I'm just you got that a good way. memory, Jeff, man. Well, I was only there like six times, right? But this was <laughs> the second time. I was there in October yeah. of ninety seven. Yeah. And my wife was carrying our final kid and he just had his 25th birthday wow. the other day. Wow. And, uh, and I was thinking that, uh, you were, uh, 43 and I was 34 wow. back wow. then. And, uh, I don't know why I would ever listen to a 43 But you still drop dead sexy, Jeff, you know? That's- <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And Willie is too. He's going to build a, you know, I'll be, your, Willie, you should be a male model, man. I'll be your agent. I'll only take 5%. We'll make millions. Okay. I mean, I, we, we will fund your church with you being a male hey, model. For buddy. the kingdom of God, huh? Yeah, for the kingdom of God. Okay. <laughs> Suffering for Jesus. <laughs> no, I, I have my question. Um, so one of the one of the things that the Lord put on our heart is to go after teenagers. Um, and if you spend any time wow. with teenagers, I think they can be described as a group of people hurting. Um, I, you know, feel like they are quite like uh they just are they're wondering where to go um yeah and you know in St. Louis where we live a lot of the violence that everybody in the nation hears of um yep. it's, it's by it's done by young men and young women yep. who just yeah they, they just need somebody to love on them and so, they do um they do obviously teenagers you know even more so now than in the past they don't have any money yep. um but we still feel like the Lord is calling us um, to them. And so I guess my question is, how can kingdom partnership, you spoke about that in another podcast about finishing the task. 
Um, yeah. How can kingdom partnership help churches like mine who will probably be in an economically depressed area? Yeah. Really, yeah. How can how can we see others hold the rope for us and yep. do other churches have a responsibility um, to hold the rope? Well, uh, the second question is absolutely. And we've partnered with a lot of different churches, like in inner city LA and stuff mm-hmm. like that. We have a responsibility for that. Uh, during COVID, we set up, uh, we, we actually were using uh, uh, food distribution during COVID uh, to, to get plant churches and stuff like that. We actually had more people come to Christ during COVID when we weren't having services. Amen. Wow. Because, because we trained our people to share the gospel with, with food distribution. Amen. There was so many people out of work during COVID, particularly people who work in the service industry. When restaurants shut down, fast food shut down, uh, theater shut down, all that kind of stuff like that. And and those hourly wage people were, they're on, I, I don't have a savings account. What are you talking about? Okay, I need, and I need food. Mm-hmm. Saddleback, we, the, we have a thing called the Peace uh, um, Center which one of the things we have is a, is a, a free grocery store. And you literally get a shopping cart, you walk through and you pick stuff off you want and, and go out with it. We have a free clinic. We have English as a second language. We have uh, 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 Saturday justice for lawyers who help people with green cards and, and any kind of law thing for free. And we all offer all these kind of social services to the people. Normally we feed 2,000 2, families a month. Wow. Free food. 2,000 fans. But the first um, uh, uh, the first week, excuse me, the first month, it went to like 6,000 mm. families. And we thought, we can't do that in one spot. Right. So we had to reinvent the wheel. And we invented a thing called pop-up food banks. Mm. And we ended up starting over 450 of them all over LA mm. and all over Orange County. And we would move in. We, we would partner with schools to provide them meals. We partnered with uh, uh, city councils to pull, pull in and do food banks and delivery. Saddleback, during COVID, became the largest food distributor in Southern California. Wow. And we still are. Actually, 26, I think, of them shut down. I don't remember how many of us sh- actually shut down because they, they didn't have volunteers. But we did. And, and so we actually moved into the gap. Wow. Well, we taught people to share their faith when they were doing the food distribution. And I had a, I had a, for instance, John uh, Cassetta, who is our worship pastor. He said, uh, I, I asked him, he said, well, I led a, I led a, a middle-aged uh, Buddhist couple to Christ today. Wow. So well, tell me about it. He said, they came up and, and we were giving them the groceries and they said, so who's doing this? I said, well, actually we're a church. And she said, why do you do it? I said, well, we, we, we love Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard about him? And they go, well, yeah, we've heard of Jesus, but we don't know anything about it. Would you like to know about him? Yeah. So he shares the gospel with them. They accepted Christ right there in the car. Amen. Okay. These are these couple uh, Asian Buddhist uh, uh, people who like were in their 50s. And, uh, and anyway, we led over 55,000 people to Christ in distributing food to over half a million. Wow. We kept records and over two and a half year period, over half a million people got food from Saddleback Church at one of those sites and over 50 
thousand, I think it was fifty five thousand, gave their lives to Christ. Filled out cards, mm-hmm. said, "I want more information." So, yeah. so it's becoming creative. Um, a, a couple things. Uh, working in uh, in a depressed area, I, I will t- say two things. First, working with teenagers, I will quote the great theologian who just taught me how to reach teenagers literally 10 days ago, my granddaughter, Kaylee, All right. okay, who, who is 19. And and I asked, we were driving around together. She came down to see me because uh, she lives with her folks up in Idaho right now. And they're actually in, in uh, Coeur d'Alene. They're moving to Boise. Um, and I, I said, Kaylee, teach me how to reach generation Y and Z. How do I reach Dean? How can I do it? And she she gave me this brilliant uh, metaphor. It was so good. We happened, all my church campus pastors happened to be meeting that day. I took her over to the campus pastors, had them teach it to them. And, and here's what she said. In reaching teenagers, you, you obviously everybody knows they're not all alike. Okay, right. They're not all alike. But he said, it's like a drawer, a chest of drawers, and each drawer is a different major problem that they're dealing with. I said, okay, what's in the top drawer? What's the number one problem teenagers and young young adults are dealing with today? She goes, identity. Yep, that's it. The question of identity. And if you can figure out messages and, and helps, Tell people it's sexual identity, it's masculine or female identity, it's uh, am I am I uh, religious identity? It's uh, I don't I don't know my daddy. I I I I don't whatever all the different things we we get our identity from our relationships. For instance, if I was raised in a forest without any human beings, I wouldn't know I was a human being. Right. The only reason I know I'm a human being is I was around other human beings and they told me. So our identity comes from our relationships. And in uh, in depressed areas, uh, uh, in inner city areas, a lot of times where families are fragmented, I don't know what my identity is. Yeah. Okay. Because I got a different daddy that my mom is dating right now every time and stuff like that. So identity is the number one felt need. That's the number one hurt. That's the number one. Uh, open wound. Okay. Anybody can be one to Christ. If you find the key to his heart, the key to his heart is where is he hurting? They're hurting. And that's why kids are dressing certain ways because they're trying to find their identity. Yeah. They pay ridiculous amounts of money for a shirt, for a logo. The the shirt isn't anywhere worth that, but the logo is giving them an identity or why they're buying, you know, really expensive kicks. Uh, you know, and, and they're looking for identity. Yeah. She said this. I said, okay, what's in the second shelf? What's their second greatest need? She said, relational connection. Yeah. Relationships. He goes, because we have so many broken relationships. Okay. Uh, uh, interesting for her in the, in where she was, she said in my area, the third thing is not drugs. It's porn. Yeah. And she said, it's actually, um, it's there now is what's called uh, there's sexploitation on social media where people are paying teenagers say, uh, I'll give you pay you this much money if you'll send me some dirty pictures of yourself. Mm. And, and kids are getting caught up in this as a way to make quick money. So rather than selling drugs, they're selling pictures of themselves mm. and, and stuff like that. So anyway, you, you, you look for those hurts, those felt needs, make your top five. 
I'll give you an example. When I was a, a, a youth pastor before Saddleback in inner city LA, I happened to be in an area where it was our, that city happened to be 68% Hispanic. And every kid was in a gang. Okay. And they're all, every kid was in a gang. And, and so I'm going, Lord, how do I, I'm a, I'm a white guy. And how do I reach Hispanic kids in, in gangs? Okay. Who are finding, why are they in a gang? Identity. Okay. They're looking for identity. They don't get identity at home. So maybe I get my identity in a, in a gang. Right. And as I began to talk with them, I thought, particularly the young men, the big thing for them in that time was I want to prove my strength. I want to prove I'm macho. That was, the, that was the word then. I want to prove I'm macho. Okay. And so what I did is I actually got our church crazy enough to buy $16,000 worth of Olympic weight equipment. Okay. And we, and we rented a house next door to the church and we set up a, a, a gym, a weight room gym. And then I got athletes in action to come in and bring in world champion uh, weightlifters and teach 10 men in my church how to teach weightlifting. Okay. And they taught these men how to teach proper lifting of weights. And then I taught them how to teach an evangelistic Bible study. Okay. And then we started opening that weight room four nights a week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I think it was. And, and they would come in, they would work out for 45 minutes sit down and have a 30-minute Bible study with a man, probably the first man in their life to talk to him for a long time. And then they'd work out for another 45 minutes. And on the weekends, we would have competitions between the gangs on who could lift the most weights total. Wow. And we and we'd award them. Okay. So now there's a there's a competition. Well the you know the the Crips won it this week, the Bloods won it last last week. And it's a it's a it's a safe way to compete. Right. And it shows macho and it shows machismo. And we led probably uh, 150 young boys to Christ mm -hmm. uh, through that program. Because start where they are, okay? Yeah. They weren't interested in a book club. <laughs> right, right. Okay. So, so I'm just saying, you as a, as a church planter and as a pastor, you have to not only exegete the word, what does it say? But you have to exegete your your community. Mm -hmm. What is the community saying to me? Yeah. And 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 there's no one right way to do that. And when you figure out something that works, then you need to tell everybody else who's working in a, a place similar to yours. And, and and that's how we help each other. Amen. Yeah. We actually have a really cool program I am really excited about called Jays for A's. Um, ah. And so Jays is is a is you know slang for Jordans, and so we yeah, right. reward kids for yeah. good grades and good career building activities. Yep, yep, yep. For with, with Jordans, and so and it also is a bridge to the youth group um, because that will be incentivized. Church That's a br incentivized. brilliant, brilliant idea. Here's the thing: what gets rewarded gets repeated. Mm. So you got to figure in an incentive for that. What incentivizes you to do that? Let me give you another one. I did this at Norwell. I mean, here at, uh, at Saddleback, um, we noticed that in the northern part of, uh, of Orange County um, that the gangs were recruiting 
earlier and earlier yeah. that if you waited until they were teenagers, they're already on, they're gone. Yeah. Okay. That they were recruiting early in the fifth grade and the sixth grade. And particularly if you had an older brother or sister in a gang, it's almost a foregone conclusion. You're going to be in it too. And so we went, we said, we've got to stop these kids uh, from cutting school and going to gangs in the fifth grade and in the sixth grade and get them early before they're actually, you know, their whole identities in the gang. So we built the partnership Saddleback Church and the school districts, four different school districts, and the um, district attorney's office got behind it too. We, right. we got the county involved. Oh, county involved. And we, what we did is we went, we, we started the first time we took 99 students and we went to these, we looked at kids who were already showing signs of they're cutting school. They're, they're going, their, their grades are shrinking. They're, they're flunking out. They're not doing good. Uh, they every sign says they're going to be in a gang. Okay. And what we did is we'd go to those kids. We got 99 of them. And we said, here's what we want you to do. Uh, we're going to do a little contest. And this was like in uh, September, uh, right after school started. We said, if you can stay in school and not have any unexcused absences between now and I think it was Christmas, maybe it might have been Thanksgiving, but I think it was Christmas. Between now and Christmas, you have no unexcused absences. You just stay in school. And, and you try to get your grades up the best you can. You are going to win a complete Christmas dinner for your entire family. Oh, that's nice. With the turkey and the trimming and the dressing and, and all the other stuff like that. And, and you'll get the win. Well, uh, th there was enough competition at that young age. It was an incentive that that young age thought I'd be the hero of my family. If all of a sudden I'm providing Christmas dinner. Okay, I'm the fifth grader. I got three older teenagers that are out in gangs, and I'm going to be. And so, uh, uh, all but two of them passed wow. the system. Amazing. And and so what we did is so then I and the district attorney and the principal of the school, we went to each of these homes and handed them. We knocked on the door and said, um, "Is Jose here?" And mom and dad are looking at Jose. Is he in trouble? Because there's a cop car outside. You're not in trouble. You're not in trouble. Okay. And all the other kids are seeing the cop car goes, is Jose in trouble? And, 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 and mom and dad get Jose. They bring him to the door. Here's this fifth grader. And we say, Jose, congratulations. You won. And we put a, we put a ribbon around his neck. Okay. We give him a certificate of accomplishment. We hand him this giant Christmas dinner. He turns around, gives it to his parents. We take a picture to put in the paper. I like it. And I, I mean, and, and then all of a sudden, everybody wants to be Jose. Yeah. Okay. He's the hero. Okay. And and that was just something, what gets rewarded gets repeated. Yeah, that's the idea. That's great advice. I like it. Thank you. All right, guys. It's been great. Hey, we appreciate your time. And uh, this is especially for church planners. You shared a lot for church planners. And Thank you so well, much for doing. You know that. what I tell everybody: uh, keep checking out. Um, uh, you know, if you write to me, if if you say you're interested in being a part of this one year course that I'm going to teach, yeah. it's free. It'll be online. It's free. Uh, write to me, Rick 
at finishingthetask.com and say, just reserve me a spot, Rick. And I'm not doing it till August, but, uh, but I'll get your, uh, your email, anybody who listens, and say, reserve me a spot. I want to be a part of that training. Uh, and and, and uh, I'd be happy to have them be a part of it. Hey, you've, uh, you've gone a long time and you've gone along a lot of years and you're still sitting there. You're serving God. You're an example. So from one of the hundreds of thousands of pastors, thank you. Well, thank you, Jeff. Thank and you. and I, what I want to do is I want to pray for Willie right now. Is that okay? Yeah, please. That's awesome. And, uh, thank we'll, you. We'll, we'll sign off on this. Lord, Jeff and I have been around a long time and we've been serving you and we love you and we're going to serve you as long as you give us breath. Uh, but we thank you for guys like Willie, next gen guys that you're calling into the field. And I thank you that he's willing to go to the tough spots, that he's willing to go where there's the most hurt, the most pain, the most heartbreak, the most messes. I'm asking you, first of all, to protect him and everybody in his relationships, family, friends, uh, loved ones in his, in his life, protect them physically, protect them spiritually, uh, uh, protect their health, um, protect their minds. And and uh, just give them everything they need. We know he's going to go through delay and difficulty and dead ends. We know these are going to happen, but we also know that deliverance is inevitable. Amen. That you love to turn crucifixions into resurrection. Mm-hmm. And so, Lord, uh, when things don't go as fast as we think they ought to go, help us to remember why we do what we do. We do it for your sake, Lord. We do it because we're grateful. Not out of guilt, not out of duty, but we serve you out of gratitude that we wouldn't even be alive if it weren't for you. Mm. So uh, I'm asking you to bless Willie and this new church. Bless the first service, but bless the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth. And uh, uh, out of something small, make it grow and grow and grow and win just the people you know that it's gonna reach for Christ. Mm. One day when we get to heaven, we're all gonna celebrate hang out for a thousand years and and uh, enjoy the the lives that were changed amen uh, in Jesus name amen 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 thank you so much amen this is a get it got it good moment Rick. <laughs> get it got it good <laughs> good right. love you guys hey god right. bless you. Hey, take, take care Jeff, write me willie write me tell me how you guys are doing uh for sure i will all right thank you and anybody else who's Very listening good. in bye-bye guys so full disclosure it's so exciting Willie is planning in St. Louis, and my church in Newton, Iowa, has is partnering with his church. We're trying to support and be an encouragement and a resource for Redefined Church in St. Louis. Next month, me and one of my associate pastors is going to travel down there and visit with his team. We'll bring a couple of them up to our church to visit with our entire church family. And then we'll be sending groups down periodically and support. We'll be getting on Zoom and just doing some coaching back and forth. And we want to partner with Willie and his team to help them plant Redefined Church in St. Louis. Thank you, Rick, for encouraging Willie and just giving him some really great coaching, great advice, great inspiration for what he can expect to run into, both in difficulty but also in hope, because God brings us through all those difficult times. 
it, it was really fun for me to be able to take my podcast and offer it to both of these guys to get together and to encourage one another. And I hope, I hope if you're a church planner, especially if you're right at the beginning, that you were able to listen in and really get some encouragement and some coaching and perspective from these guys as they shared. Hey, thanks so much for joining me today. Don't forget, go to redefinestl.com to check out Willie's Church and what they're doing there. And hey, if you wanted to contribute, let's see, do they have a tab for give? They do have a tab for giving. Yeah, if you want to support what they're doing, that would be awesome. Uh, but also, email Rick Warren at rick at finishingthetask.com and ask him to reserve a spot for you on that year-long course that he's going to be teaching starting in August. Again, check out his website, finishingthetask.com. It's really great commission completion language. So write to him, rick at finishingthetask.com, and ask him to reserve a spot for you. Hey, we'll see you on the next episode of the 200 Churches Podcast. My name is Angela, and I'm so glad you've stuck with us to the very end. We'd love to have you leave a rating or review wherever you listen to this podcast. Until next week, may God bless you as you lead and love His church.